Gordon, great to have you on Real Vision. Great to be here. Thanks, Ralph. I think your story is an incredible story, and it's it kind of all leads to this moment in time, which is the kind of dominance of this SaaS business model that you were such a part of. So I'd love, before we kind of talk about what's going on in the world and how you see things, to go back and tell us your journey, um, because it's fa- it's a fascinating journey. Well, thanks, Raul. Yes, um, I have, um, you know, quick story on my background is I, I grew up in, a, um, up in Maine, and a little little town in the middle of, uh, on the coast in Maine, and, and my family moved me up when I was young, and that was my first taste of how do you deal with something that's not what you plan, but it actually pays off. I had the chance to go to a high school that had a little program called rowing, which is crew, which I was a non-athlete and picked up this sport and it changed my life. My wife is a rower that I met in, uh, after college and rowing has completely changed my life. And if I hadn't moved to Maine and then gone to a school that had rowing, the, you know, the world would certainly for me not be as beautiful a place. And uh, rowing is still, I row uh, many days uh, a week, even now at this stage in life. And then um, I had the chance to uh, started on kind of on your side. I was actually ran uh, a division, uh, worked as an analyst at First Boston and ran a group um, that started the collateralized mortgage obligation when I was at at a very young age, decided I didn't want to do the standard pool. So moved uh, with a guy named Dexter Senf to invented the mortgage-backed security and uh, sort of uh, uh, worked with him, and, and we created that wonderful security that was actually wonderful in the beginning, and then it it got uh, twenty years later got sort of taken over by uh, by different forces. So early in my career, I always learned that if you just avoid the herd and and try something different and new, it pays off. Um, and then we'll start making the transition to, to uh, meeting an amazing uh, gentleman called Mark Benioff, the founder of Salesforce.com. I had sold my second company to IBM and uh, was running a division of IBM there. And Mark walked in the door looking for a launch partnership to, to really uh, launch his young company called Salesforce and go up against Siebel, if you all remember uh, uh, Siebel Systems days. And by doing that, uh, all of a sudden, the people you meet in life changes your life. And I had the chance to help him uh, in small ways get Salesforce started. He then recruited me to, uh, to start a new company that was separate from Salesforce, which was the platform side of this whole SaaS and cloud revolution. It was called Software as Service, ironically. Uh, so we kind of, our company was the name of this whole category. And I was CEO and Mark was chairman and we, uh, for a couple of years, built that and then ultimately uh, uh, sold it back into Salesforce and it's become the Salesforce platform. And what did you you see in that at the time? You know, when he's pitching you the idea and the story, did you see that this is a kind of a huge revolution that was coming? What year was this, roughly? This was 1999, so okay, right, the earliest, right, and when the things were were certainly uh, uh, still in bubble form. Um, and then, uh, as we as we came down, the key to to you know, great leaders are both visionary in their in in, in what they see, and they have conviction to stick with it. And while the rest of the world was coming unglued, I remember when we were raising our first uh, venture fund around. Uh, with Salesforce as our sort of anchor strategy, we were we kind of invented the SaaS in, uh, investment model, which we can talk about later. Um, I remember our investors would say, are you investing in a dot-com? You know, they're all sock puppets, dot-com days. And we clearly were not. It was a very different model, but, but everyone looked at it and said, oh, we're, it's just another post-bubble company that's going to go away. And Mark had a very clear idea. He he had. I remember talking to a to a uh, IBM exec while I was there, and uh, they would stand up in front of customers and said, "We, you, and I wasted a lot of your money over the last fifteen years in, in you know client server software, and that's because shelfware led the day. Right, a lot of money was spent on this software, and it never actually was implemented. Mark saw that as a massive opportunity from within Oracle." that let's create a model that more aligns with the customer and it will pay off. It's going to take a while. You know, everybody loves the front, you know, big 
upfront software licenses. These take time, but once they get going, as we've now seen you know, 20 years on, uh, once they get going, they are incredibly powerful business models. And so, so how, how did you survive that 2000, 2001 dark days period? Uh, I, I had left IBM. First of all, my career was in cash after the IBM acquisition anyway. Uh, and then decided that uh, with Mark, just take a risk and let's see where this new world uh, might go. And then once we sold it into Salesforce, I either was going to do another startup in the SaaS space uh, because I had certainly seen it, um, or uh, I was going to maybe start a venture capital firm. And that's what I ended up doing uh, with two amazing partners. We came together around, you know, if this if this works as well as we think it might for Mark, why don't we be the parallel uh, strategy within the investment side? When you, when you um, built out the fund, what did you think the opportunities were going to be? Because we always have a kind of vision in our head and it never normally materializes. Some of it does and some of it's wildly wrong. So when you started, what did you think were going to be the big opportunities? Well, we called our first category, even though we had, you know, I had with Mark named the, the, the company software as service, we thought that was too niche. Uh, it was too small, right? And so uh, Salesforce was a big winner. And we had a couple of others uh, intact in the accounting space. We had, there were two or three companies in those very early days that were doing it. But most were hybrids. Most were trying to be, remember, application service providers, which is just take, taking client server software and putting it on the web. Very few companies really were doing it. It was sort of Salesforce and everybody else. So we called the category technology-enabled services, which terrible name, but that was our broad uh, description for these are not consultancies and they're not, you know, behind the firewall software companies. They're sort of in this middle ground uh, that gave us, we thought, a big enough uh, swath to to focus. But over the life of emergence, uh, we have just tightened in on exactly what the value is. And let me comment on a, on a point uh, I love to make, and this will come back later as we talk about the current opportunities. What Mark really had conviction around, not only did he have a vision for customers don't like shelfware, but he also had a really clear vision on this concept of multi-tenancy, which how many of us have made a lot of money within the cloud uh, software world, and we really don't know what multi-tenancy is. And let me just you know highlight that the key insight, and Mark got this 20 years ago, while the rest of us are kind of figuring out over time, is that when software gets automatically updated across every customer, when one customer finds a bug and then, or finds a new solution, or you get new insights on how the workflow should be done better, everybody benefits. And I remember when I was talking to Textron, on a reference call about uh, success factors, which we ended up investing in, sold to SAP. Um, uh, the Textron gentleman said, you know, last, I've heard that sales, that success factors is using, or is used by GE. And GE has an amazing HR team and they know how to really run their teams. So guess what? By using success factors, I'm ultimately getting access to GE's insights. And when I heard that, I'm like, that is multi-tenancy. That is this little jewel of value that has been at the root, I think, of most of the cloud. Everyone else says it's easy to use, easy to adopt, all of that. No, multi-tenancy is a fundamental business model innovation that Mark saw early. And what we're going to see now is take that, that's still just for, you know, software-based network effects when we start getting to the real network effects that are coming around AI and machine learning uh, and the amount of value we can offer, it's going to make current cloud software look like just the tip of the iceberg in terms of what we can do in the AI space. But we'll, we'll get to that later. Yeah. On. So when you started Emergence, what kind of, had people kind of understood this game yet? Or were you one of the first people to start to realize that this was a big opportunity? And therefore, I'm guessing the valuations weren't as rich. Yes. Again, we were not only early, we were, we were other, again, other than Salesforce, there was almost no one doing it. It was sort of Mark was ahead of the curve, uh, way ahead. And we were willing to bet that the market would, uh, would sort of start to come this way over time. But it was, we would, 
make sure we were meeting with every single company that was even close to doing this in any other sector. As I said, ASPs, some were consultancies that said they could build software, which usually never worked. Um, so there are lots of, of ways we had to sort of pull the market into this category in the early days. And we were, you know, luckily, I love to say that I wouldn't be here talking with you if we hadn't been, if we had just been another, you know, new idea that just didn't catch on, you know, but, but the, what I'm most proud of is we focused, we stayed at it, we didn't sort of, um, you know, start to wander to consumer or wander off to some other area, we stayed in the lane, and, uh, and it's gone very well. And when did Mark Andreessen come out with the software is eating the world? Because that was one of the, the moments that everybody started. And that's one of the most profound statements I've ever heard. And it, it remains profound. But yeah. it sounds like he started to figure it out at some point and kind of made it famous as, as people. Yes, I think if I looked at that, Reese, I think it was 2010. And we started Emergence in 2002. Wow. So, uh, so we were, again, did we, did we think of it in that same way? And he's, I think that's a brilliant uh, encapsulation. Um, so yes, it's a, the key is we as a firm are 100% focused in this area while, uh, you know, it, it, there's very few venture capital firms that haven't dabbled in either in, you know, obviously consumer in semiconductors and healthcare. And once you start getting you know, uh, good at what you do, guess what? You typically don't stay focused. You start wanting to hedge. And what I love to say is hedges have cost. They are not. <laughs> so and so I know you would uh, appreciate that. Yeah. And, you know, I am fascinated. So the first few investments, what kind of valuation metrics were you using at that stage? Again, it's 2002, three, four. Uh, it was just coming out of the, the bust there. Um, yeah, the, those early days, it would be, you know, two to three million dollars going in at a, you know, seven to 10 pre uh, for, especially in a category that wasn't seen as hot, right? And, and uh, so that back then, nothing was that hot, uh, and certainly not uh, SaaS software that hadn't even really been named yet. Yeah. So then what was the evolution? So as you move through, what kind of investments were you starting to find and uncover you know, getting in towards you know, 2010 when things start really changing. So the trajectory of cloud software is not dramatically different than that of software that's come before, client server or even mainframe. Starts with horizontal functional areas. So it's sales, it's marketing, it's GNA, GNA uh, or general ledger, uh, it's HR. So you have all those different sectors we call horizontal cloud. And those are the first ones to go. And those were the there are uh, cloud equivalents of all of those companies uh, that really happened between, call it 2003 and 2010. Horizontal cloud was the, the game. And then around, um, you know, overlapping with that, then it went to industry cloud, which we also, so we, we helped to create the whole category of cloud at, at, in total. And then within the industry segment, that's when, um, the classic rotation of software to then go in uh, and build by industry and fundamentally add value. The difference in the cloud by industry focus is you can layer the cake. You can start within one area like CRM, and I'll use a company called Viva Systems that you may have heard about, uh, started in CRM, but then ultimately added content management and analytics and and kind of ran their uh, our way through the business with different value uh, propositions for each segment. In the old software days, you couldn't build the you know fifty million or hundred million lines of code for each one of those pieces by yourself. So they would start companies like Documentum started within one area, let's say life science and CRM, or or document management, and then they went horizontally. In the era of the cloud, you can vertically integrate and create incredible businesses with, with much higher kind of competitive moats because not, you just can't catch up once you get started. But we can, we can um, talk about that as well. And then, then the next major trend that I'm seeing is a horizontal cloud, industry cloud. And then once you have the context within a given industry, you can then add machine learning and AI to add additional value. 
And I wrote a, a piece in 2010, I think, maybe not quite as well quoted as, as uh, Mark Andreessen, but the death of McKinsey. And the concept there is that if you think of what McKinsey does, and I don't actually mean that they're going away, but the, the value proposition they, they bring is to uh, executives, they give, they gather all this data from within your business, and then they tell you, here's which direction you should go, or here's next best action. Guess what? Software companies have that now. They have the value of what your employees are doing, what your customers are doing, and the ability to, and they have real understanding of how to build that software and build that analytics. With AI and machine learning, we think that's the next major trend on top that to me will make the call it if you and I who use software every day, is it maybe 5% addition to our productivity, maybe 10? If we actually can know on the fly, almost before we ask how to conduct an interview better, how to stop, you know, put my hands down because I'm not, that's not a good, you know, way to have an interview. The value of that software is going to be uh, orders of magnitude higher than the software we have today. When you look at this, I know you studied economics. The business model is super interesting because it has two massive benefits. One is price deflation. It's, I mean, you can't compete. I mean, none of the existing kind of software or architecture that was there could compete against these business models. So it's inherently deflationary. Um, and the other thing is the margins just were of a different order of magnitude than anybody had seen before. How did you find... Mm -hmm. You're thinking about the margins. I'm thinking about the, the margins. I, I mean, I, the licensed software margins were pretty sweet as well, oh, right? Okay. It's just that you were um, the value that customers were getting wasn't very high, and they were they weren't they fundamentally weren't uh, happy with it, and uh, it was going to have to there had to be a better solution. And Mark drove a truck through that. That was what he saw. He saw that people are just sick of spending five million dollars on you know, the margins were quite high on that software, but they weren't getting value. So when it comes to renewal time or, or when something better shows up, he knew he could sort of sweep the floor uh, with them. And so, but, but, but please keep going with your, your question. I, I agree with you on the fundamental uh, business model as being sort of uh, that we're, we're lowering cost and lowering price, uh, which is good. And therefore, more and more businesses can use it. Which I mean, is cloud, cloud is the great example. I mean, it's just, it's so cheap now compared to everything that was there before it. And as you point out, it's infinitely scalable, really. And so yeah, the marginal cost goes down and yet the providers still have big margins because the marginal cost of them is so low. Correct. And I mean, that's what, it, looking at the macro picture of why this sector is doing so well in this environment, uh, with yields low, everyone's reaching for yield. You can almost look at these companies and then the fine tuning we can talk about, but you can look at these companies as their bonds. They're, they're bonds that are growing very nicely. So call it 50 to, to 150% annually in growth. And uh, in, with most of them, and this is, I think, the most important thing to look at is what is their true competitive mode. If within these industries, it's incredible competitive mode. And that's why I think some of these industry cloud companies are doing very well, because once you're in and providing value to these customers, the idea that some startup is going to come up and sort of, uh, you know, pick, out, pick you uh, off is going to be much more difficult. And so... Uh, they really are, you know, reliable cash flows. And then, of course, with the pandemic, you add on this acceleration of digi digitization that's occurring where everyone wants to get ready for the next wave and do more with less. And software is, you know, is eating the world. Uh, but now it's just eating it faster than, than we thought. I think we all know by now, things are pretty fucked out there for most of us. You see... Whether it's currency debasement, rising real estate prices, or wages that never go up, it's really hard. And one of the most popular things we ever did was that series, How to Unfuck Your Future. So we're going to do it again. March 11th, March 22nd. We'll discuss the problems at hand, no holds barred, and then we'll give you all the tips you need to unfuck your future. It just costs a dollar to join Real Vision to get access to all of this content. Go to realvision.com forward slash the future. I'll see you there. 
let's unfuck your future together. Yeah. So we had the accelerant of COVID and this recession. So what's the state of the industry now? Because obviously video was one of the big uptakes. And, you know, we've been in that in, in Real Vision for a while and realized that video was going to basically destroy all forms of media because it's, and now it's getting easier and easier and easier to do. And even businesses like ours have gone from being more media-like to more SaaS-like in, mm -hmm. in the way that it operates in margins. And, you know, it's incredibly liberating. We're also seeing it with money as well. You know, a lot of people who watch Real Vision are very interested in Bitcoin, the rise of cryptocurrency and blockchain technologies. And you can see money is about to be disrupted in this whole process. So let's talk about the state of the industry now, what, what, where we are, because, I mean, we've also got unbelievable valuations because everyone's trying to value these, what does it look like, a 100-year bond with growth? And, you know, people are struggling with that. So let's go through that, and then we'll start walking into the future of it. So how are people valuing these, these, these businesses? And I, I fundamentally uh, believe that it is a, a stream of cash flows. There's DCF work going on here, um, obviously with a lot of where is the upside uh, going to come from. Um, but compared to any other bond that's available, um, the credit quality, there, that's one of the reasons why enterprise is so hot right now, especially those that are selling to larger companies, mid-size and larger companies, because the chance of all those companies having a credit challenge, I know you've been talking recently about the credit potential squeeze ahead, um, but the, 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 the quality of most of these large enterprise SaaS companies and the companies they sell to is so high that chances are, unless they make a misstep, it's just going to be continue to, to sell uh, all on the way through. And as I say, layer on this new wave of machine learning and AI where we can, we think as an industry, uh, appropriately charge more and more dollars uh, for what was workflow software, but now it's uh, network effect software. It's sort of, I'll, I'll digress for a moment. One of the things that has always angered me about the consumer side is this misalignment with the customer, right? We're seeing it with the show on Netflix around you know, the social dilemma and everything else. I think we all understand it, but let's really parse it out. We, the social network uh, value of Facebook and Instagram and Twitter uh, is one that fundamentally takes our behaviors, harvests our behaviors, and then doesn't give us back any value, they sell it to a third party. It's that we didn't know it, but we're the product, right? I think everybody sort of now gets that. What's interesting is in the next wave of software, we are both the, 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 the uh, behavioral expertise that I have about certain things and you have about others can be captured, sort of like multi-tenancy, right? It's if all the users that are on, and I'll, I'll give you some examples of companies that are early in this, um, but for now, uh, if, if I as a user of software can, can, can help that software company understand the habits of the best users and the way they use it most reliably and most usefully, and I can kind of as almost like a best practice network, share that with other uh, users on that software, and you have this constant evolving best practices world, that is a network effect business. But here's the critical difference. So everyone says, oh, so aren't you just going to start harvesting me as a user of your Slack software or something? The difference is I'm aligned with helping your employer um, you know, make you more productive. I'm not trying to sell it to a third party and then ultimately not close the loop. And yes, things could still go wrong that if all of a sudden the employer says, hey, Gordon, I can see that I've been able to let, you know, five employees go because you've made me so productive. But we're working on a, a, a strategy we think will have longer term value, which is as long as we're making your employees more productive, you're going to pay us more. But we're not trying to write them out of a job. We're not trying to we're not focusing on RPA, which is, you know, robotic uh, optimization. We're not we're not focusing on automation which again can get rid of, uh, of workers. We're trying to work on ways to help workers evolve faster, train faster, be up and running quicker. Um, and I can take you through examples in sales, in knowledge management, in writing, where we're, uh, we're working on all those areas. Yeah, I mean, I'd, lo I'd love to hear because this is now where things are going. Because I mean, we're looking at, I mean, and we'll, we'll get into machine learning and AI because that's fascinating as well. And that's this and it's kind of, supercharging the humans that are doing the data science or the marketing team or whoever it may be 
and giving them the hive mind of all of the customers. I mean, we were looking at a product called Pecan, and Pecan basically uses everybody's data and all the algorithms that have been learning to increase everybody's the quality of everybody's data. It's like, which is exactly what you're talking about, I guess. That's right, and and there's sort of levels of we we're calling this um, this fundamental trend because we wanted to separate it from automation and all these things that everybody's scared of. We're calling them coaching networks, and the concept is what is either either an executive coach or an athletic coach. What are you doing? But you're gathering unique behaviors of your athletes that you're working with or your executives, and then you're when you go meet the next person. You're fundamentally saying, here's what I've learned. I take a little bit from one exec, another from another exec, and here's what I think will work for you. But this isn't going to be human-based. This is going to be software-based. It's going to be that software will learn those habits that have the best outcomes. I'll give you an example because it'll bring it home. We have a really interesting company called Chorus.ai. Chorus um, sits on top of Zoom. So we could be using this if I were a sales rep and you were a customer. And I would know by the signals of what has worked well in previous conversations, are you an introvert, are you an extrovert, what is your background, and so forth, what angles to use to have a conversation with you wow. to bring this home. So it gets rid of sales skills, essentially. It's sales skills. And the key is it's not based on, it's not a Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross sales skills. This is tuned by what you are interested in you know, all the data about your business, but also behavioral data. Like, you know, I see you're crossing your arms. Is what I'm seeing right now, is that a positive or a negative as I'm, as I'm commenting? And we, can have, we have real-time feedback. I have to start very simply. But simple things like, hey, Gordon, have you asked a question in the last 10 minutes? Or are you just babbling? You know, or, or what's my talk time versus your talk time? These are very simple things to do now. But you can see where this is going, that software will make, you know, what I love to say is it's sort of the, it's the end of forms-based software. Forms-based software, we take all of what we understand and reduce it down to a little form field and say, Raul and I had an interesting conversation about X. Why not capture the actual conversation, everything that's going on, and then use machine learning and AI, it's mostly really machine learning, to analyze those trends and help us figure out how do we improve our game. And whether you're, uh, we have examples in manufacturing, and as I mentioned, augmented writing, in knowledge management about a company called Guru that'll pop up a card and say, here's where the world's headed. So I won't, uh, I won't overdo it, but I will come up with a pithy equivalent to software is eating the world. And it's going to be that this, you know, humans are going to take back control. Uh, it sounds it, like it's like it's augmented humans. Basically. It is augmented humans. Yep. It's a, and the key is, and here's my, my, if Mark Benioff was, and he did come up with multi-tenancy as a breakthrough, my, his mind's a little longer, but, but in the age of AI, humans are the only mutation engine. We're the only ones that actually advance the, the game. If AI, AI is very good at optimizing, but it doesn't know what to try next. It doesn't know what's the next thing it should try. It'll ran, it could randomly run around and try things, but you're going to have a lot of just ridiculous outcomes. Humans have this context that lets us know, hmm, going down this particular road might really work. And sometimes it doesn't, but the system can understand that trail that I went down worked and was different than the ones before, and it learns from us. Yeah, I guess because we're able to make hypotheses and test them in a way, so you're pointing in the right direction. You know, my, my example of this always was when they finally discovered in London what cholera was, mm-hmm. there was a lot of different people saying it's an airborne thing, it's this, it's that, it's this. And a guy mapped out all the cholera outbreaks and realized they're all based around water pipes, but only mm-hmm. some water pipes. And they were the ones that came from the Thames and not other water sources. And then he figured out it was a waterborne virus. But, and that's very difficult for a machine to learn because it takes a long time because it knows nothing. Right. That's right. The human can say, here's a potential, let's test. That's right. And it really, if you think just doing the through line over 20 years of software since Mark and the multi-tenancy concept really came alive, multi-tenancy is a simple forms-based uh, network effect, right? Learn, customer fix, helps everyone. 
This is just taking that to the nth degree. It's all of our behaviors, all the things we do that are brilliant. You know, we have we have certain things we do that aren't brilliant, and and we aren't gonna. We're just gonna tell you what not to do potentially. Uh, and then other things we do that are brilliant, that are fundamentally new ideas. And as humans, we will we will evolve faster in this next generation of software that's coming uh, because you're going to be able to learn quickly the in effect the wisdom of the crowd or the hive mind. But it's going to be behavioral, not not words. It's not Google. It's actual behavioral data. What's also interesting to me is where words and behavior have come together, which is GPT three. Yes. I mean, this is a huge thing that's about to happen because, you know, it's the blurring of when machines can write pretty decent language that you can't tell if it's a human. So I hear you, and I've had lots of, of conversations with folks that know it better than I do. Um, and I'm of two minds. If we all become... Um, you know, if we all get into ruts, I love to say, it's like what I tell my kids, it's what I tell, you know, our CEOs, so forth. avoid ruts. If you just are constantly doing the same thing every day, the AI's got you figured out. It really does. Like it, it, it's, you know, and I won't, I have a, a bad VC analogy of involving vests, Teslas and towns on the peninsula. You know, they've got you figured out and I won't, I won't do that. Um, but, um, uh, or us figured out, I, I'm sure. I, but, but if as humans, we keep, you know, writers, my dad was a writer in Life Magazine and, uh, you know, writing, if we start doing kind of standard writing, yeah, GPT-3 is, and four and five will, will take us out. The issue is, is, is right, the, the rise of behavioral economics, once you've got data sets, the machines end up getting better, as we've seen by Facebook and Google and everybody else, is the machines get better at understanding human behavior than a copywriter would. So yeah. you end up with more powerful copy, a more dangerous copy. You know, it's just, a, it's very fascinating. No, I hear you. I guess my, so we can say throw up our hands and maybe in the long run, that's the answer, but I, I just don't believe that. Or, or again, the other thing that always uh, upsets me is the idea of universal basic income. Like, why don't we just like, is that our best solution in the world? Like we're, we want to raise this, you know, raise workers of whatever level and type um, and not, not treat them as, oh my goodness, the world or treat us as if we're all uh, disposable. So, um, so yeah, the question is the main thing we want our kids to do and, and, and any workers in our, in our businesses, employees is just iterate, try new things. You know, don't let, um, GP, you know, GPT three, uh, you know, don't start believing what you're reading there because there is an there's an added level of value. So that's a question I want to ask you. Just what your views on? Yeah, we talked about it a little bit before. Is Facebook, Google, the spread of online stuff, the ownership of our own data? Where's this all going? Because it kind of feels like we're we're at the end of this the social media phase, and something has to change. Yeah. What do you no, think? It's a, it's a, I'm I'm on the uh, board of a. Uh, group called Common Sense Media, which is more focused on kids' privacy, um, but it's a great model for the way we're going to have to own our own data. We're going to have to, um, you know, obviously with with what's happened at GDPR, that is already occurring. Uh, the the California law around that as well. That this is a trend that's that's got to continue. And, um, and I don't, I see it as a one way door. We're going to, we're going to have to be in control of either get paid for when we give up our data or just be able to block it much, much more efficiently than we do now. Yeah. Cause I was kind of thinking that, you know, to go back to the universal basic income is if you actually got paid part of the monopolistic rent that is extracted by these platforms mm -hmm. for your attention span, it actually solves quite a few problems. So if you have your data, you own it. I know Tim Berners-Lee is working on something like this. Mm -hmm. A lot of people in the blockchain space, like Brave Browser, are trying to do this as well. If you own your attention span and lease it out, you can create income, which kind of makes sense then. Yeah. And the, the issue is the, the pain of the business model shift where we're not getting these things for free and we're trying to decide what 25 cent charge we want to receive to be on Facebook or something, it's, that's going to be a big shift. And I wonder, 
if the Facebooks and the Instagrams of the world look anywhere like what they do now when this new model occurs, because talk about undermining their business model. Uh, the business model has been free labor in effect. Uh, and what yeah, happened? That's I'm dead right. It's free yeah. labor. Free labor and the labor is giving them, it is also the product. It's, it's not just labor, it's, it's the entire product uh, unto itself. Yeah, I mean, that can't sustain. Um, what about, again, on this kind of topic, deep fakes, that's kind of like the GPT-3 where anybody could become anything. What do you think about that as well? It's another difficult thing to control in this whole environment. So it, it is very difficult to control. And I think in, in the same way that we have to control our, um, our, our personal data, you know, uh, using kind of DRM, um, digital rights management solutions are going to have to be at a whole new level. Watermarks are not going to work. You know, there's going to be a new level of authentication that has to come in to every now image, you know, given what's, what's happening. And you're right, what, how, where this can go. We're going to have to have um, sort of what they have for the seafood industry, you know, from the catch to your table. We're going to need that for everything. Um, and a DRM is going to be another area of massive. I mean, that sounds like a huge business in its own right, because it's a massive problem that needs to get solved. Absolutely right. And it's going to it's going to take time because these are just hard, hard challenges for for us as consumers to go through. And so uh, the question, do you want to be too early or or uh, or a little bit further on? But. It's a big, it's a big challenge. So, what exciting stuff are you seeing in the machine learning? Because it sounds like a lot of your focus is on this application layer of machine learning. Where do you think the really big breakthroughs are coming? Because it sounds like, I mean, everything's going to change again. I mean, we're struggling to deal with so much change, but it just sounds like everything is going to change again. As you said, to give an an average salesperson the tools to be a good salesperson with on-screen prompts. I mean. I mean that's a game changer for many, because then you can you can hire a twenty two year old who's had no sales experience and just say, "Listen, be a nice guy, follow the prompts." Off you go. Uh, yeah, well, that's again without I won't won't dwell on it, but that is the robotic side. The key piece is if we can take a, a twenty year old and get them up the curve to being a BDR uh, business development rep, and take a, an experienced salesperson and move uh, them up to being exceptional. So it's all levels uh, of the game that it's not trying to roboticize. Uh, that, is, that is a bad future. <laughs> it feels like, do uh, you remember the series from our youth, um, The Bionic Man? Right. Because what you're doing is you're giving humans the processing ability to do things we can't ordinarily do as effectively. Sure, some people can. There's always a more talented salesperson than any machine learning will ever be. But in general, it just gives us superpowers, which yeah. is amazing. Well, so let me ask you, given what I said earlier about coaching networks, where do the superpowers come from? Is it the AI? Is it the algorithm? Or what is it? No, I, well, I think it comes from the actual source, which is the people itself. That's, that's the key, which most people don't, they think it's augmentation because of, algorithms or yeah it's actually augmentation of of other humans helping you through the system called software and that's basically what we've done at real vision it's to bring all this financial knowledge into one place mm -hmm. where you're basically learning from everybody and the community itself writes posts and discusses it and debates it and different people have different backgrounds and there's no other way you'd get this knowledge exactly right now so a little challenge then would be as a user, that's sort of what uh, what obviously Google has done pretty darn well. Everything can be in one place. You're doing it within a, a, a tighter, as we are, in a tighter industry focus. Um, but it asks the user to divine some of those insights, right? It's saying, hey, I'm listening to, to this uh, uh, video, and I'll take a little snippet from Gordon about this or a little snippet from, from your comments. It, it asks the user to do a lot of organizing. Um, what would be what that real future is? Is imagine if that organizing is done for you by the software, already and, in my and you know where it's going, and and injected just in your moment of need, just when you need it, and you need that little, you know, uh, in the moment training. Imagine if you'll get that idea and say, "Oh, that's right. That's what I should do next." Um, well, it'll take a while. This is hard to do, but imagine. 
in, you know, in real time exactly when you need it to get that prompt uh, in whatever industry you're in, whether you're a trader, you know, I mean, <laughs> uh, Bloomberg should have been doing this all the way along. He never really took that amazing screen he's got and turned it into an asset. Yeah, Bloomberg built one of the greatest software products I've ever seen and then just abandoned it. Yeah. yeah. And what he could have done, if you see where, you know, incredible investment firms like Renaissance Technologies have done with technology and machine learning, he didn't do any of it. But I guess he's worth 65 billion, so he wasn't that motivated. He's done well, uh, to say the least. But here's, here's what also, uh, a lot of the reason why these shifts can't occur and they have to be done in these sort of 10-year increments, and there'll be a new wave of winners that aren't the ones that came before, is because of things like contracts and agreements. And, um, you know, Mark, for example, and I'm sure uh, Bloomberg as well, uh, his contracts were always written that it's not our it's not our data, it's your data, you as the customer. So anything that's in the Salesforce system is not ours to do anything with, it's yours. He's since, you know, the, the Salesforce has worked very hard to rewrite all of that, uh, those contracts. But, but until you get those rewritten and you have a different, in effect, relationship with the customer, you can't do this. So that's, I think, one of the biggest challenges ahead is for all these things we think we can do, we've got to have the customers trust us and certainly not think of us as Facebook. You know, if Facebook is, is on the category of almost zero trust uh, because you're harvesting, it has to be looked at as uh, we are here to, to be like McKinsey, but we're doing it with software. We're going to help you. Do but I think your point was, was dead right. Once it's in a vertical and it's a walled garden mm -hmm. and you say, well, everybody here benefits from each other and the data doesn't go elsewhere, mm -hmm. but we will use your data and everybody else's to improve your experience, which is essentially the same idea you had with SaaS in the very beginning is that everybody improves on the product. Yes. And this, everyone says, fine, I agree. I'm going to chip in my data and we'll all benefit. Exactly. And just imagine those relationships, those conversations, the way that's done. It's all going to be incremental. It's going to start in ways, and it has to, it should, start in ways, as I said, with simple prompts that use metadata, but no, nothing very specific. And everybody's, you know, it's that sense of trust and, and comfort. And that's going to take time. It isn't going to be overnight that people can, can do this. But I look in the same way that multi-tenancy is now just being understood 20 years on. Uh, this won't take that long, but this could be a five to 10 year cycle of what I call this next era of software. And is Shopify part of this? Shopify, interestingly, I, can't, I probably shouldn't comment on which of the companies I just mentioned are powering uh, a number of basically all uh, Shopify employees, so I won't comment there. But they are very much in this model of learning from best practices and habits of their uh, merchants and then finding unique ways to add value. You know, eBay did a bit of this in the early days, if we use that analogy. They tried to help you with your bidding strategy and your pricing optimization, but it was rules engines, right? It was very non-dynamic and, and uh, stilted. This next era is going to be, I, am I, you're going to work with companies and realize, my God, every time I work with Shopify or I work with, you know, it could be, it won't be, it could be Slack. I mean, let's use Slack as an example. Yeah. I keep seeing new bits and pieces that show up that make me better at using Slack every day. Yeah, and Slack hasn't done that yet, really. No, it, again, it's not going to be, well, between, uh, yeah, between you and me, uh, it is it is going to be a new generation of companies that, yeah. Yeah, because it has to come from the DNA of the company because it's too hard to do otherwise. As you said, even just repapering all the contracts becomes a nightmare. Yeah, and think of it. The, these big moves, we had, client, we had mainframe software, we had client server software, and we had, I'll say in almost past tense now, cloud for what I have to do for a living. Uh, the next era is going to make all that cloud software uh, 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 look like forms-based workflow, kind of 5% productivity improvement software. Some of those companies will make the move to this new world, but the vast majority will not. And, and there's going to be a new set of winners um, that, that take advantage of this next phase. And so how the hell do you go about finding these companies now? I mean, that's what you do for a living, but you know, it's, it's like voodoo for me because I'm like, 
you've got to listen and sit down and listen to all of these pitches and figure out which ones make sense, which ones don't, which ones. How do you do that? What is the magic in what you do? It's first of all, with at Emergence, unlike many firms, as I said, we, we've had success and we've stayed focused. Those two things don't go together. Usually success makes people add lots and lots of teams and people around it and, and to monetize that success. We're trying to stay focused. So with that, we're very thematic. So this idea of coaching networks is pretty much all I'm doing. I, I could look at in, you know, investments from you know, 100 other areas. And in some ways, it's, it's a good idea because you want to be, you know, keep learning new, new segments. But I'm focusing on this because with focus, I, I sit down and if you are an entrepreneur and you were doing something in the AI space, I'd get a, a tighter version of what I just said to you. And they'd be like, I get that. I see why I'm going to be commoditized if I just make a forms-based software company. Um, you, know, you commented earlier, cloud software, one of its biggest opportunities and issues is it can be replaced, not in enterprise harder, but it can be replaced with the next generation. And the next generation, that iteration speed is going to get tighter and tighter. If it was 10 years in the cloud, it's going to be five years. The cloud's going to look dumb. It's going to look dumb. And it, you know, it already does in many, many cases. So you have to keep moving and you have to almost continue to re-architect your software to take advantage of what we just described. So with entrepreneurs, I and we as a team sit down and we just tell that story. We're storytellers at the end of the day. And we tell a story of a future and the entrepreneurs either say, I get it and I have to work with you. And I think that this is an interesting future. Or they say reasonably so. We've got another plan. I don't quite understand it. I don't, or I don't want to understand it. How do you find these companies? All this kind of, the world is now a very connected place. A a well-placed blog or content piece, as you know well, can be read by lots and lots of people. So we've always put out semi-provocative statements about the future of the world. Notice coaching networks is not you know, uh, automation or us, or we're just, or we're the AI guy. I mean, that's all that, that doesn't, nobody listens to that because it's too, too broad and shallow. We're, we're quite specific in, as to what we're looking at. And we actually talk about ourselves as sort of a hybrid between a, a startup and a venture capital firm. Startups have to focus and they have to tell stories. Uh, a venture capital firm often back to hedging has cost. If you start just being, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, as a partner or as a firm, be too uh, pigeonholed. To me, that's where the problem lies. Is you, you should be willing to say this area really matters, and I'm going to own it. Yeah, concentrated bets are yeah. the way for better return. Always, as long but, as you get the bet right. <laughs> but guess what? Right. Guess what? It's scary. <laughs> you know, having a concentrated portfolio, everyone knows it, but you really need to eat, have a lot of conviction as a money manager to do it. And then as GPs or, or, the, invest, or the, the entrepreneurs, you've really got to have it. Sort of as you come down from the, the LPs to the GPs to the entrepreneurs, it's got to be a further level of, uh, of conviction and risk-taking tolerance. And what I, what I notice is as the venture industry typically has success, risk-taking goes out and hedging comes in. And that's, that's the obvious. You know, yeah, you, know. um, you see that in the whole money management industry. As soon as people have more assets under management, they stop making returns because okay. they just want to look after themselves. Yeah. It's a weird old world. So what could make you wrong? You're taking the concentrated bet. For me, it sounds like, well, it's a great story. So... That's part of it. So it attracts capital and it attracts entrepreneurs. It feels like it's right. It feels like it's a very logical step because we as a business are looking at some of these things saying we need this. Mm-hmm. How do we go about it? It's still pretty nascent. Where could you be wrong? Well, first of all, let me make it clear that it's the firm as a whole is not focusing only on this. We have three, always have three uh, parallel core thesis areas. And we do 80% of investing within those three areas. So um, the quickly, the current ones are what I just described. That's probably the, the leading kind of newest one. Then um, the, the whole um, uh, deskless workforce concept, it's mobile, but it's, it includes drones, includes anything where 80% of the population 
doesn't sit behind a desk every day. They're out in the field now. These days, harder to do, but but will return. So that's a whole other category of investment that we think is just, it's an inevitable trend um, that that is going very well. And then the, the third and kind of the older is industry cloud, is this focus of cloud-focused uh, industry, uh, cloud-focused uh, companies that, that only look at one industry at a time. So more specifically, you're risking your reputation because this is your baby. Correct. <laughs> and, my point, yeah. and as the founder of the firm, I get to sort of do these things. But no, I also think it's really important. It's that it is we want to, within our team, develop that sense of you know, our core value is uh, we focus to drive conviction. That's our, we have you know, two others I won't bore you with, but those are our core values as a firm. So as members of the team, we want to develop that as new, new folks come up the stack and, they, and we do it around you know, hunches and themes and minor themes, major themes, have that development of themes be the currency of the firm. And guess what? Those are the things that humans do uniquely well. We're, we, we can't out-process machine learning. We can't out-conceive. We use our frontal cortex. So we just got to do that all the time. And, and in any industry, but certainly in the VC industry, that's where you got to focus. So to, to go back to the question is, is, what could go wrong with your thesis? So you've made your bet. Right. You're doing the work on it. You're finding the opportunities. You're picking whichever companies you, you decide to choose. What do you sometimes think, God, I hope that doesn't happen. Or, you know, is there, is there something here that, that concerns you? The, where's the risk in the yeah. bet? No, it's a good question. I, I probably shouldn't go on record with this, but why not? Um, so, yeah, I think the big, it's a little bit to what I commented on earlier, is transitions are hard. We're used to a business model of sort of the system of record business model of cloud. It means all of your data, you know, before you used to have your CRM system on Siebel, now it's within Salesforce. It's a system of record model. And those records are those little form fields, right? Those little database elements. Yeah. That system of record has nice pricing metrics to it, right? $100 per, uh, per user per month is the Salesforce sort of model that they created. There's nice predictability. There's, it's, it's, a, it's a known model and a known pricing. In this new world of I help you do your job better, what's the pricing for that? And is it a constant c- campaign game? Like think of which, you know, you have to keep your game up to keep the videos going, to keep the community going. And I think there's a sense from buyers early, because this is still such an early phenomenon, sort of like it was with Salesforce. That's a toy. I'm not going to pay $100 a month for that. Well, in the end, they, they, uh, they are happy to do it. Um, in this new world, this idea of having a self-improving uh, uh, you know, uh, engine of value coming through software is harder to price. It's not a fixed price per user per month. And uh, it may be fixed, but it's going to then have to be, well, I got a lot of value this quarter, but I didn't get as much, you know, three quarters out. And that doesn't mean it's not a good model. It just means it's going to take, it's going to take some innovation to, to work through that. I mean, the analogy would be, you know, if you didn't have the advertising model to keep people coming back and you had to charge for Google to give you all that value that, you know, when we can search and find something immediately that we needed, what would we pay for that? And I think we'd pay a lot, but it might be hard to, especially when you had been using it for free, what do you pay now? So I, I think there's some, it's a, it's a new business model that will take some time. Yeah. And that's just how do you drive adoption essentially. And once you drive adoption, you can charge, well, the old model was give it for free and hope it works. Who knows how this works, but Somebody will figure out a business model here that will make it work, whether it's something, maybe it's more around the amount of processing it does for you, you know, the amount of work it does for you, essentially, something like that. Because I mean, they, there's a lot of ways to look at it in terms of each of these functional areas. How does it improve, you know, does it improve uh, sales close rates? And, and you know, uh, but the hard part is whenever you're attaching to a, to a delta in close rates, let's say, or any metric, it's hard to charge a percentage of that for long. That's because uh, people like it in the beginning, but then they're like, ah, you know, I'm getting enough value. I'm, I'm not sure if you're doing anything to pr- improve it. Do I really want to pay that much? I would say that's the, qu- that's the question that we have to work out as, a, as an industry as we go forward. 
Nothing I'd like to pick your brain on because it's clearly about to change massively as education. Hmm. Got any thoughts on that? Yeah, um, I'm on the board. So first of all, we're the largest investor in Zoom. I don't know if you knew that, uh, but that's, so we're, we're seeing how Zoom is changing back to the behavioral uh, insights that we all can have now. Guess what? You know, Chorus is the ultimate example because it's a sales rep, but but the same thing is happening in both K through 12 and higher education. A company we announced recently uh, called Class EDU is doing primarily uh, K through 12 education within a Zoom context of how you can have hybrid learning. You know, uh, cameras in the classroom, but but the the teacher can be up on one part of the screen. They can immediately know who's raising their hand. I mean, all of the things that Zoom as a horizontal platform wasn't tuned as well for, Class EDU is going to bring to education uh, in K through 12. Higher ed, I'm on the board of a company called Top Hat that has 750 large institutions in North America, all standardized on its classroom engagement model. And now they're bringing in the virtual classroom as well. So you're not even just looking at the the sassification of education but you're actually looking at the next application layer on top already exactly it's happening that quickly yeah hell well and partially again what this pandemic has just made things some industry made things happen faster either bad things happen faster or good things happen faster and or in between we won't know this um this digitization of the world through zoom is uh is an you know is an opportunity obviously we will be yeah, because, I mean, for example, my wife is a board certified behavioral analyst treating kids with autism. Now, once you use AI and understand the prompts that kids with autism don't pick up, they can, they can have automated prompts because, you know, it's just basically the data saying, you know, this kind of facial expression means that, things that they don't understand as kids. And maybe bringing it all back, the old idea of taking the world, whatever world we're uh, experiencing, and reducing it to a form field and typing it into a database, I mean, these are all databases, is the fundamental breakthrough, that we're not going to do that anymore. We're just going to be, your wife is going to be on with her, her uh, patients or students, and she won't even have to, she won't even know what she did that was brilliant, that got that student to smile or do something different. The system will go, that was amazing. Like what you just did and got the, the, the you know, the, your student to all of a sudden do something and you don't have to then document it and write a note out or anything. It just captures it and it's done. It's now in the literature and, and the world is now instantaneously smarter. And then guess what? Her colleague in Australia had another breakthrough that just came back to her. And that's where this is headed. I mean, look, it's terribly exciting. But how do humans deal with this pace of change. I mean, it's astonishing. I mean, if we just think of 2010 and Facebook onwards, right, it's it shattered societies, it's changed what we do, it's changed everything from sovereign boundaries of countries, because now we've become tribal online. I mean, everything is changing so fast. The system of money is about to change. I mean, how do we all deal with this? That, that you know, I said that, that agreements are going to have to be rewritten. Our uh, yeah, our agreements with software are going to have to be written. We're going to have to, you know, we're going to have to, we're going to have to trust that software is not overrunning us, right? And not uh, saying you can't absorb that fast enough, so we're just going to leave you behind, humans, you know, and and just do it ourselves, you know, just iterate within, you know, machine to machine. Yeah, but think about somebody who's elderly. Let's say my mum. So she is now. She's not in the workforce, but imagine she was still, you know, in the final days of working. Her ability to use this software is going to be relatively low because she's just not used to interacting with technology. But somebody who's come out of gaming as a kid, who is now 20 years old, has such an advantage in this space. I don't know. I'll, I'll push back. It's going to be, um, you know, we've already seen that software is becoming more and more specialized, right? You're going to be able to make a lot of money, even if you only specialize in a certain subset. Um, uh, so the example would be in the case of your mom, um, the more that there'll be a version of the software over zoom, which has a friendly way to give that feedback and the prompts will only, I know, I know, but, but there sense. won't. Sounds like, yeah, obviously, of course. Why wouldn't they? 
Yeah, you're not, and you're not using software. That's the other part. Is yeah. if software is done right, I'm you know there's a little little you know, the example. I don't know if you've seen the clicker analogy for doctors when you're trying to teach a resident about a new surgery. They don't want to distract. I mean, the surgeon's the person's trying to you know save someone's life. They have a clicker and they just have it in their pocket and they just click, which is just saying you did it right. Like that was great. They did that for dog training, by the way. Exactly. Of course. Yes. Yes. Exactly. So imagine. Analysis. Imagine if for your mom, or I'll say your mom, because I like saying it that way, since you did, uh, that it just gives a little thing on the screen saying, "Hey, that was awesome," or like a little bit of a, and nothing more complicated than that. Not a bunch of dials and screens. It doesn't look like a Bloomberg terminal. For the twenty-year-old, it'll be you know maybe a Bloomberg terminal if they're ready for it, and then there'll be everything in between. Uh, in terms of helping us learn faster and this in real time. Also makes it sound to me that Siri and, and Amazon Echo and all of this stuff is already going to be out of date. It, it'll, have, it'll have its piece, uh, it's, you know, but privacy-wise, like we don't have one in our household. I, my wife would no, never know. I don't want anybody listening to me and so forth. But um, I think that's true. I, we'll see. I think it's basically may- search engines right yeah. now. It may that that may be one of those local maximus, you know, that don't actually matter in the long run, but they got us a certain area, and then we got to go back and and re uh, re evolve a little a little differently. And I think Zoom, and you know, in particular, not at all talking about our directly our our company, but what Zoom has created and what the pandemic has required is that we're now more digitized than we were before, and so the ability to help is that much greater and potentially the ability to do harm. But that's, again, what I'm most focused on is we've got to do, we've got to do the right thing with this uh, technology. And that's very important. It's like Microsoft saying, we're going to be the, we're going to be the, the father figures in this world. And I think they're doing a really nice job uh, protecting our privacy in ways that, that are ahead of, of other big companies. This is absolutely fascinating. So if people want to, invest in anything in the kind of public markets because a lot of people don't get access yeah i mean a, a lot of our subscribers are kind of high net worth or professional investors and stuff and then there's you know there's funds like your own but if they want to kind of look at some names and get to understand companies that actually trade outside of zoom you know because a lot of these trade on peas of a gazillion uh, you know you know it's it's very difficult but what, what, anything interesting that you would say okay that's an interesting company you should look at not, it's not an investment recommendation, but just something to look at. Yeah. I mean, here's what I've been saying to, let's say, my uh, buyout friends who are further up the, the, the chain. Um, and therefore, either some are still private, but are, or been, you know, uh, brought private. Um, I would just, that data, data is king. And that's sort of obvious, like that, that the idea of just looking at your forms-based software, it's what, what information are you capturing with your customers. Uh, so I would look at, at companies that, whether it's in the insurance, you know, go by industry by industry, which companies have unique data assets that they haven't monetized yet. Um, and they can figure out how to, it's, it's not this ultimate end, but it's this initial step of companies that have unique proprietary data sets are going to trade better in the next five years than they have in the past five years. Okay, final question. Why the hell does it, is Google not worth even more? Because they actually own more data on everybody on Earth than any other entity. And Here's they don't really use it. That's it. Here's my issue. It's a little bit like bringing it back to focus in, in investment. Think of them as one big invest. They're too broad. They are peanut butter. And yes, they want to be good at these, but it's going to be in some ways, first of all, they have a fabulous business and we all are envious of it, but they won't also be able to, like Salesforce wasn't able to do Viva, you know, uh, which ultimately was, you know, the first product line was built on top of Salesforce. Uh, that's how we kind of got started. It's hard for a company that's to be both horizontal and, uh, and focused in a certain area. And the highest margin companies going forward are going to be those that, in effect, vertically align because they have more data that's in context, right? It's all about context. If so, deep, the deep and not broad. So the opposite, the opposite of the last decade, which was broad and not yeah. deep, and this is deep, yeah. 
and not broad. So you you own everything and understand everything about one space. Yeah. And it applies. I think it applies to the investment world, a la what I think we're doing as a firm is be focused and you have just outsized returns because it's you're you're competing against the broad and shallow team, whether it's investing, you know, or 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 startups and companies, same thing applies. Um, so I think that would be my maybe my my parting comment would be um, those of us that are willing to stay focused have better context, either in our investing strategy or our ability to create new software. The tighter we are, the more we can create magic for our customers. And if we can create magic, we're going to get paid really handsomely for that. So that transition, it may be existing companies that figure out how to do it, looking at, at public companies, or it's going to be the new new ones that come up the stack. Yeah, and I, I actually wrote an article about this, that concentrated risk-taking is actually what accumulates more wealth than anything else. There's a few platform players, and there's a, there's a few of them, but not many. So it's hard to be an entrant and beat Facebook, for example. Yeah. And in investing, it's the same. You know, some of these hedge fund platforms, you know, big asset management platforms like BlackRock, fine. Actually, all the returns come out of concentrated bets. Same with entrepreneurs. There's no no question. So I guess let's if we think about then big public companies that are doing workflow software, I'm just gonna uh, um, are they gonna be able to make this transition to this new world? They could. Some could. I, I um, again I don't want to name names because I feel like it's it's inappropriate of some in, you know, knowledge I have. But if you look at all the cloud companies and start putting a, a sense of are they focused? Do they have particular focus areas, and have they shown a propensity to turn uh, their f- workflow software into kind of more McKinsey-like value, you know, the death of McKinsey concept? I would be looking for that uh, if I were a public investor. And also, what's great tailwind that you've got is they're all going to buy companies to try and figure it out. Correct. So the whole space is going to trade at a premium. There's plenty of exits to be done, and everyone makes a lot of money while they flounder around, and somebody a new entrant figures this out. It almost always happens that way, right? That's that's the, that's our job. But most importantly, and I'll again leave on a my the reason we call this coaching networks is it's it's designed to help humans evolve and grow faster. And if we stop doing that, then we're in the land of of uh, of doing doing evil. And at least as far as I'm concerned, this industry has to grow with privacy with you know, ironclad customer agreements and with that user growth in mind. It can't be that we're harvesting you and then uh, shunting you off. And that's the important takeaway. Gordon, fascinating conversation. Loved it. All sorts of things racing around my head now. Uh, Look, I really appreciate your time. And uh, good luck. It's going to be a fascinating journey to watch. And I think a lot of people will go, okay, I hadn't thought about this. I think people are aware of it, the periphery. But yeah. you put it all together, for, and the, the, I think it's super interesting. So, well, thank you, and, and you are you are a, a great interviewer because it, you you brought out the pieces without and let me go a little longer, which I really appreciate. Uh, thank you for for doing this. Not at all. Fantastic. Mm-hmm.